It's great to have you joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you in August of 2023 from Atlanta in the Muscogee Creek Territory in the Piedmont region that's in the foothills of the Appalachia Mountain Range. Today we're going to be talking about fish and the need for marine environmental policies and programs to move toward a discourse that treats fish as subjects and as ecological beings rather than primarily objectifying them as human food or quote unquote stock. Basically sustainable fisheries rhetoric should stop reducing fish and other aquatic animal species to mere economic resources. Our guest, Dr. Jennifer Jacquet, professor of environmental science and policy at University of Miami will tell us her rationales for why a change in our discussion of fish is warranted and beneficial. Let me first tell you about her. Uh, Jennifer Jacquet is a professor of environmental science and policy at University of Miami. Right before this, she was formerly an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Studies and director of XE Experimental Humanities and Social Engagement at NYU. She was also the deputy director of NYU's Center for Environmental and Animal Protection. Her research focuses on animal and animals and the environment, particularly wildlife conservation and overfishing. She also studies globalized cooperation dilemmas and attribution and responsibility in the Anthropocene. She's the author of the book, The Playbook, How to Deny Science, Sell Lies, and Make a Killing in the Corporate World. In 2015, she also published the book, Is Shame Necessary? about the evolution, function, and future of the use of social disapproval in a globalized, digitalized world. Before this, as a student, she was a Sea Shepherd volunteer, a manatee intern with Florida Fish and Wildlife, and volunteer shark tank diver at the Vancouver Aquarium. Dr. Jacquet earned her PhD in Natural Resource Management and Environmental Studies at the University of British Columbia and her master's in environmental economics at Cornell University. Welcome, Dr. Jacquet. Thanks so much for having me, Carrie. Now, Please I call see- me Jennifer. Oh, okay. Well, I just to, just so that everybody hearing knows that you've got this PhD, I'm going to use your formal title if that's okay. But it's but if you meet her on the street, everybody, you can call her Jennifer. Uh, <laughs> I see you did a lot of volunteer work with marine animals. What got you interested in focusing on aquatic animals for your career in environmental studies? You know, if I'm honest, what got me interested was um, a subscription to Ranger Rick, if you know oh, that. that. classic. Is that the National Wildlife Federation book or something? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Magazine for kids. And I would get those as a kid. And um, and then at, soon after I got that subscription, and that's where I first learned about manatees, and I fell in love with them as, as animals because I felt like they had such special characteristics. Yeah. But um, then I got this book, 50 Simple Things Kids Can Do to Save the Earth. One of the things they recommended was writing to a little NGO called Earth Island Institute at the time. They sent me a big package of information at the time about the tuna dolphin conflict. Yes. And, and those, those things really stuck with me. I mean, it's easy to sort of read retrospectively into what shaped your, your desires. But I was always really interested in marine animals and then you know, my parents sort of convinced me that there there was a difficult future ahead if I studied marine biology, but that if I could sort of do like economics, some you know, that I would have a, a more secure financial future. So I managed to sort of, you know, braid those things together and, um, 
and meanwhile, as an undergraduate, as you said, as you noted in your nice introduction, got to have these experiences that really shaped my research interests um, with Sea yeah. Shepherd and the Fish and Wildlife. Um, uh, really cool group down here in Florida. Yes, and it's good to hear about like the how those um, those organizations and the work they do influenced us as kids because that's what we always want as the, all the nonprofit organizations. We want to kind of um, get kids excited about changing the world, and so it, it kind of it worked <laughs> in your case. What what are some of your biggest concerns that you choose to focus on? Well, so. Um... With Sea Shepherd, for instance, that was an interesting campaign because I was part of this boat called the Sirenian. It was in the Galapagos Islands, and it was the Sea Shepherd um, Conservation Society's foray into shark conservation. Mm -hmm. So it was not focused, as they do tra had traditionally, on on whales and other marine mammals, but on sharks. And so already you see this kind of turn that's occurred in my lifetime, and that I certainly hope to be a part of which is extending the kind of moral imagination that we now have with regard to marine mammals to other species, sharks, but hopefully eventually fish and invertebrates as well. Yes. Oh, I, I like that. I, I'm, I'm a really big fan of that. And we could talk more about that on, on this uh, episode uh, in terms of respecting all the different marine animals, not just um, the mammals. <laughs> so uh, and I wanted to have you on the show after I read an article on the Aquatic Life Institute website that summarized a provocative perspective piece that you recently co-authored co -authored with Dr. Uh, Daniel Pauly, published in the journal PLOS Biology, and it's titled Reimagining Sustainable Fisheries. And it your piece challenges the bias towards industrial fishing and economic commodities in our fisheries and marine environmental policies. What was the origin of you teaming up with Dr. Polly to decide to challenge the traditional anthropocentric foundations of so-called sustainable fisheries management? Yeah, so Daniel Polly was my PhD supervisor. He wow. um, is who I worked with from the from 2005 until 2012, actually, when I got my job at NYU. I was in his lab. And these are ideas that we have been talking about for you know, almost 20 years now. Yeah. And what, well, you know, the, there's a kind of pragmatic reason as to why we teamed up, which is I often share my work with him and he often then contributes in a non-trivial way that demands that he get co-authorship essentially, because I realized, gosh, this article's totally taken a new form because of something he said to me or, or some kind of you know, point that he's made. And this was one of those cases. He um, never ceases to be kind of illuminating, at least in my life. And so I said, well, you know, you now you have to be my co-author because you've completely changed the kind of substrate. The article previously was much more focused on, on MSY as a concept, this idea of maximum sustainable yield, which of course was also applied to whales. And Daniel's point, which which he eventually won me over by it, it, just to summarize it briefly, he has many points, but is to say that MSY, the mathematical model that sort of justifies exploitation and, and sort of gets you to this, how much of something should we be taking out of the ocean is not fundamentally the problem. It is it is a symptom of this idea of seeing um, fish as single stocks to exploit. So if you're going to see the ocean that way, MSY is not a bad way of executing 
that view. It's that view that is entirely problematic. And so we, we broadened the horizon of the piece quite a bit, thanks to him. And, um, and we're arguing really, I mean, you, you framed it nicely in the introduction in terms of the policies, but also in terms of our own imaginations that we really have to start seeing seafood as animals, not just as commodities, not just as food, but that we each have a power to see these animals in a different way. And that that actually may change things in in so doing yeah i really i really liked that and and so and one of the the main lines i'll read it for our listeners from the your reimagining sustainable fisheries perspective piece says the current conception of sustainable fisheries focuses on single stocks targeted by industrial fisheries to supply growing global markets including those for fish meal which is basically animal feed Sustainable fisheries should be reimagined to minimize exploitation and prioritize artisanal and subsistence fishing rather than industrial that feeds people. Tell us more about the argument that you and Dr. Polly are putting forth in this perspective piece. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, you could also, in a way, frame this piece as ending industrialized fishing. Yeah. Because now there's going to be this dispute around the edges that, oh, some industrial fishing is better managed than than some artisanal fishing. And you can you can sort of tinker with with that marginal argument if you want. But the the fundamental argument we are making is that we've unleashed this technology, industrial fishing boats, behemoths, you know, yes. trawlers, uh, tens of thousands of them exist on the ocean. And they catch about 75% of the global catch. This catch is, as you point out, turned into fish meal in some cases. There's a huge amount of bycatch, huge amount of additional deaths of seabirds, turtles, sharks. And not only that, we don't have strong evidence that this, these fish go to feed hungry people. We have evidence of that for subsistence fishing. Of course, it's in the name, which represents you know only about 8% of the global catch. And then the remaining catch is is artisanal small scale fisheries and that's where people you know if it was up to me I probably would have said just subsistence fishing Daniel wanted small scale and subsistence we sort of you know compromise that's what you do when you have co authors yeah um and so. Uh, but but I think starting with the idea of ending industrialized what we would call factory fishing is a very good mental model to have, because this is not a form of fishing that respects fish as animals yeah or anything really (laughs) or really any animals out there or in many cases not even human labor in many cases uh not the end use at you know to this idea that fish are ground up and fed to other animals this seems completely wasteful and um and and an affront really to any idea of sustainability so we're arguing for this what has happened is people talk a lot, and I, you said it in my title, I have a PhD in natural resource management and environmental studies. I don't like that title. I, would, I wish I just had a PhD in environmental studies. People have considered fish as natural resources, as things to exploit maximally. And then the idea of sustainability is that, oh, we might you know, put a few years of quotas in so that we can get higher catches the year after that. Now that in and of itself is still better than nothing, 
but it's not really considering the holistic nature of fisheries. It's, it's certainly not considering the end use. It's not considering the animals themselves. It's not considering what effects the gear have on the broader environment. And I think that the idea that so many, especially environmental organizations have bought into this concept, that this is the way that we should be thinking about fish and this alone is at this point outdated. I think a 21st century view is to have the view that we're, that we're espousing in this piece, which is let's end, end industrial fishing. We don't care if it's well-managed or not. We're care, we care about these broader questions about end use, about um, uh, what, uh, how the fish are, are, are caught and killed, what else is being killed in the meantime, how many government subsidies are going to support them, what the climate change impacts are, just this broader notion of sustainability. I love this. And I like how you challenge in your piece the notion of fishing as, quote unquote, food security and the excuse that the fisheries are necessary to feed people or as a protein source. As many of us have access to healthy plant based foods and proteins, and it would make more sense for us to be eating those. Um, So eating sea animals is optional for a lot of people in the marketplace. So are you asking the um, the policymakers to define how much killing is necessary for human subsistence, not just what is sustainable to supply some kind of market demands? I mean, not only that, we're asking or we implore, you know, the FAO, which is the major international body sort of keeping track of this stuff right now, to commission a study on who is actually eating the seafood that's caught in the world right now. So this 75% of the catch that is industrial fisheries, to your point, is going mainly to highly developed countries, the EU, Japan, the US. And these are countries we know that are very food secure. And this, this idea that we are fishing to feed people, we are fishing to eat fish, no doubt about it, or to eat something that that is being fed those fish. But it's not about food security. And so often, um, fisheries management organizations like CAMLAR, which manages fisheries in Antarctica, which again shows you this incredible blind spot that we have because we protected whales in Antarctica, we protected penguins, we protected seals, we did not protect toothfish or krill. And so there are still industrial fisheries in Antarctica in a place in a, around a continent that has no indigenous humans to exploit those animals, some of which are then going to fish meal to feed farm salmon in Norway, um, it, it, you know, it sort of astounds the mind, boggles the mind. And, and Kamlar was saying, oh, we're, we contribute to global food security. And when you look at, drill down into that argument of who is eating Chilean sea bass, a fish that is $30 a pound at Whole Foods, right. at who is eating Antarctic krill as fish oil supplements or as farm salmon ultimately, because they're, the, they're ground up into the meal to feed them. These are really not food insecure people. And that that is a cover up for right. what is ultimately a money making operation. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature. And I'm host Carrie Freeman talking about reimagining sustainable fisheries to begin to perceive of marine animals in a less economic and anthropocentric way with our guest, Dr. Jennifer Jackwet. She's a professor of environmental science and policy at University of Miami. Um, Dr. Jackwet, do you see any examples of organizations or countries starting to do what you're suggesting in terms of implementing environmental policies that focus on fishes, not as commodities, 
in food stocks, but as living beings or wild animals? So unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. I think where we are still is in building up public opinion so okay. that we see those those scales start tipping in other more formal realms. And where I see interest is in some environmental groups, in some animal groups, especially embracing the question of now factory fishing, capture fisheries, questions of aquaculture. And I do see uh, an, another thing I, issue I work on is the rise potentially of mass production and of octopus. And, mm -hmm. you know, octopuses have been traditionally only hunted in the wild. And now there is a uh, proposal to to mass produce them actually on a, in a Spanish island off of Farming Africa. Them. Uh, yes. And there is now really interesting proposed legislation in Washington state, in all of Canada, to put a precautionary ban in place on this activity. So to me, this kind of, of work is happening because people are starting to see, you know, these, these animals as animals, as not just uh, uh, commodities to put into mass production. Yeah, like that My Octopus Teacher documentary. It did a know. lot for yeah. octopuses, right? Because that was the first time we're really seeing, that was octopus vulgaris, the exact same species that they want to put into mass production. We saw its life in the wild. We yeah. saw her, uh, her explore the world. We saw her curiosity. We saw her intelligence. And then we're talking about at the same time putting her and other members of her species into mass production. It does, it's a it's a giant paradox, actually. Um, you, know, you talked about this also in the paper in terms of whaling, as an example, like how that was phased out. This like maybe how we've come to think differently of whales, not as a commodity. You're saying we could actually, as a as a community, as a society, start to think of other fishes and marine invertebrates. Um, in a more respectful, individualized way too, right? We have an absolute blueprint for this. It is not unfamiliar. It is, there's a, a precedent. And I think it is, provides this very promising groundwork. Now there's a major difference, which is that, you know, the vast majority of whale slaughter was not for eating. Right. Um, it, while it's true that some, you know, and some whale was eaten and is, yeah, it was it was for you know, a, a kind of different commodity. And the way people are around food complicates this a little bit. But there's also a lot happening in the food space, you know, both with plant based, but also potentially cellular um, cellular production that lab grown, you know, seafood that I think presents some wild cards. And yeah. so, yes, whale, the whaling case is so interesting. And actually, I had the honor of um, getting to work with Sidney Holt um, previously in my career. He's now deceased, unfortunately. But he was this incredible scientist who at the IWC, as a result of learning so much from, from this really kind of wacky gang of scientists, we have to say, people like, um, people like Paul Spong, who were playing the flute to captive orcas, you know, um, and, and Roger Payne and Tim McVeigh, um, he was synthesizing all of this incredible behavioral research, uh, research that showed there was culture, communication, singing among whales, and really deciding, you know, we're jeopardizing this incredible, this incredible culture that is out there in, in the oceans. 
with industrialized whaling and and became a, a huge advocate from a very from a place of you know what seems like a, I, I think a kind of rational position right he, he became a huge advocate for a moratorium on whaling and of course not him alone this was these are giant swells of humanity that come in but one thing that we've looked at along with with dale jameson who i know you know is kind of how these protections unfolded and do they do we see any promise for for other marine creatures let's say like tunas or, or octopuses or or maybe we think about fish just kind of and aquatic invertebrates as a whole so i think it's really an exciting time and i think um, I teach on the subject too, and students are really excited by this. You know, they really don't want to do resource economics, MSY, um, maximum exploitation. They're interested in a new relationship, and um, and it's fun. It's fun to think about it, and it's important. And I hope that we can get there in time. And I love how you're talking about this too, just even using the word culture, because as as we can start to see about octopus culture or tuna culture, um, which Jonathan Balcom's book, What a Fish Knows, did a lot for that too, right? Then we could respect multiculturalism and recognize and, and using, because that language component is so important, as you mentioned, um, and to stop talking about them as stock or as food or as seafood and talk about them as individuals, <laughs> or talk about their families, their communities. If we change that language, it changes the way we think about them. Um, Absolutely. And it also might change the way we think about ourselves because yes. I don't think we think about what it's like to be a water breather very often. Yes, right. And I don't think we think about it very often, although the people who do are astounded, but what it's like to you know live one to two years, which is octopus vulgaris, to have this incredible acquisition of the natural world without parental intervention and have this ability to you know have personality, but have incredible cognition, curiosity, uh, memory, and then in such a short lifespan. You know, there's just so much that is incredible about some of these animals that you you think, oh, well, you know, we might think a little bit different about human cognition if we think deeply about octopus cognition. Oh, wow, I could talk about this forever, but we have to, I have to wrap up. But Dr. Jaguet, for listeners who are interested in helping fish species and promoting a change in the way we discuss and oversee our relations with marine animal life, what suggestions do you have for our listeners? Well, I, I love that you suggested my octopus teacher. I think it's a great it's a great place to begin. Um, you just start seeing the life of this individual in her environment. You know, I think that's where we have to start is to stop looking at these animals only on the seafood counter or only in an aquarium, but to go into the spaces in the ocean. That's where they shine. That's where those behaviors will be seen. Even a film like Seaspiracy, which is, um, you know, has a lot of problems. It tried to do too much, but it at least starts thinking about fish as something other than seafood. Yes. I thought that was uh, that documentary that is good, right? Yeah, that was another it's another good resource. Also, if you're a member of an environmental organization or an animal organization to keep fish on the agenda to push yeah. them forward on these issues, I think would be really helpful because um, we know how overlooked. much 
they even get overlooked. animal and environmental protection people totally the fish and invertebrate species get overlooked you're right they get overlooked even though they're the largest sort yeah. of group of animals that we exploit and so um it's really important to to keep them sort of top of mind or at least at least put them up there yeah. and um and then you know especially on the policy front i think you know thinking not just about it's it's hard because what we really need are elected officials who care about a new relationship with the environment. It's not really about, do you care about fish? It's like, are you willing to embrace a new way of being in the 21st century? One that involves decarbonization, one that involves caring for the environment, one that involves seeing animals as individuals as well as populations, one that involves caring for one another, that considers healthcare, as a right, you know, there's just so much. And yeah. so I think sort of embracing it, it tends to be that people who who think in these directions are very open to then seeing seafood as animals. I love it. Well, that's the end of our show. But I want to thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer Jacquet, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. Thanks for the work you do as a scholar and public intellectual and in speaking out to protect marine animals. Thank you, Dr. Freeman. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time online at wrfg.org and in Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com forward slash In Tune to Nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board, staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. And remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species, like those who live underwater. Thank you for listening. Cheers. <laughs>